Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, welcome back to the Equipping and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And with me today is Dave Van Bever. Dave, welcome to the show, brother. Man, thank you so, so much. I'm excited to get to be here. It's been such a joy to get to visit with you all yeah. the way across the country. Yeah, yeah. We've had many, many good chats uh, over Messenger and email and, of course, over Zoom as well. So it's great to chat with you. But can you tell us a little bit more about your yourself, Uh your your life, your marriage, your ministry, what ministry products are you working on, and some of those things briefly. Yeah, I'm excited to tell you these things and introduce myself to your audience. Again, thank you so much for having me on. Well, I am so blessed to be the husband of one wife, Valerie. We have four children, and we just uh, think the world of them. We're so grateful for them. Uh, John is 20. Evie is 17, Violet is 14, and Elisha is seven. They're a lot of fun, and God has just blessed me greatly with the opportunity to shepherd in my home, and I love that role of being pastor and uh, pastor in my home, I should say, and husband and father. That's one of the greatest ministries God has called me to. I am very fortunate to get to serve as the pastor at Lynn Valley Community Church in Lynn Valley, Kansas. It's just a rural community just outside of Kansas City, Kansas, and outside of Kansas City, Missouri. Um, Besides that, I get to... um, get to serve as a professor of communications. I'm an adjunct professor of communications at Spurgeon College, which is the undergraduate program of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary there in Kansas City, Missouri. They're for the church and for the kingdom. And if I didn't say for the church once in this, uh, I'm sure that Dr. Allen would be very disappointed in me. I don't know if you've had other MBTS folks tell you how much we are for the church, but we we really are. Uh, Besides that, I am so fortunate. I have a great friend who lives in Springfield, Missouri. We co-host a podcast together. We've been doing it since 2017. We've got around 280 episodes or something like that. And then uh, as far as the other little thing, you know, I uh, had been a student at Columbia Evangelical Seminary and uh, in the DMEN program, but there's been a few little issues with the school itself. And it's a great school. I really loved it, but they're actually going to be closing its doors and I'm not going to be able to get my DMEN finished up before they close the doors. So I have been writing for that uh, program and I've got a what I'm going to turn into a little booklet on just the failed prophecies of the 2020 re- election of, well, re-election of Donald Trump that didn't occur. And so I just kind of look at that and that's my writing project that I'm currently involved in right now. Okay, that sounds good, brother. That sounds good. Well, thank you for uh, sharing a little bit about your yourself. Uh, can you uh, tell us about uh, your book, Did God Stutter? A Presuppositional and Historical Defense of Inerrancy? Tell us why you wrote it. And it's been out a little while, so how yeah. has it been received? Well, it has, it was 
So I wrote the book originally um, as a paper for a for my DMN class in inerrancy. And then I thought, you know, there's more to this than what I wrote in the paper. So I extended a few things and I wrote it because, man, I think that uh, covenantal apologetics or presuppositional apologetics has a unique relationship with the doctrine of inerrancy. Most individuals who write on inerrancy, at least the ones that I was reading, who are taking these really strong stances, many of them were uh, more classical in their approach. In fact, as I visited with Richard Howe uh, after I had published the book, uh, it was really interesting to get to engage him because he is classical and he wanted to know a little bit how a presuppositionalist would approach that. And because uh, again, kind of the foundation of covenantal or presuppositional apologetics is of course the transcendental argument for the existence of God. Uh, essentially, it functions as the reducto ad absurdum argument or a deductive argument that makes its conclusion or establishes its conclusion by demonstrating the absurdity of the opposite. And so I really think that there's kind of a neat um, point of contact between inerrancy and presuppositional apologetics. And I wanted to kind of flesh some of that out. Um, my other reasoning would be um, just real simply, when I was in college, I went to a private school uh, in Missouri, and I was a communications major. And I had a professor who, when we were dealing with semiotics, which is, again, the study of words and how words have meaning. And as we were dealing with the theory of semiotics, my professor introduced the idea of inerrancy. And he said at my Christian college at the time, that's a stupid idea. No one talks about inerrancy. That's an old thing that died back in the 90s. I thought, oh, OK. Seems like a crazy thing. No one talks about it. It died in the 90s. I don't need to know anything about it. We never used that term in my church or the church that I grew up in. And then as I was getting ready to graduate, the president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary at the time, Phil Roberts, showed up to our campus and gave everyone a free breakfast. He really um, lured me in by the free breakfast, not so much the idea of the seminary, but he hooked me because he said, we believe in inerrancy at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I thought, you know, I thought that it was just crazy people that believed in that. That's very interesting. So it at least intrigued me enough to be very interested in possibly attending there. And of course, Phil's son was a friend of mine, and he just encouraged me all the more. Hey, Dave, you're a smart person. You should go to seminary. And I was just blown away um, by the fact that people at Midwestern believed the Bible. In fact, in my systematic theology class, I even wrote a paper on inerrancy back when I was working on my MA in counseling at Midwestern. And so it's something I've been intrigued with. And then, of course, as I got introduced to presuppositional apologetics and read a little bit of Bonson's thoughts on inerrancy as found in um, Norman Geisler's 1980 book, Inerrancy. And of course, that has a lot of different folks in it. Uh, I was just really fascinated with that connection. So I wanted to kind of flesh out that idea of, of what inerrancy has to do with covenantal apologetics and uh, is there a way to use essentially the transcendental argument or the uh, argument of reducto absurdum in a defense of inerrancy? Yeah, that's really good, brother. Uh, what exactly is inerrancy and why does it matter? You know, that's a really good question because 
many people, I believe, have hijacked that term. And I, I use that term not loosely because when I say hijack that term, they have changed the meaning of that term. So you might have people who say, yes, I, I affirm inerrancy. A lot of people go to ETS. And of course, part of being a member of the Evangelical Theological Society is that you affirm the 1978 Chicago Statement. In fact, interesting piece in 2000 or in 2020 i debated a guy on inerrancy he is a member of ets he does not affirm the chicago statement in the way the authors intended it so it is an important term to have a good grasp and understand what it means and i think that uh, paul feinberg actually does a great job of describing what inerrancy is and so i'm just going to steal his definition and this of course does come from norman geisler's Book where he's the editor, the 1980 book, Inerrancy. And Feinberg says this, Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm. Mm. Stated simply, inerrancy is that the Bible is true in all that it affirms and it contains no errors. That's a very simple piece. And one thing that we always know about language is um, in meaning sometimes we have to qualify things. And so really inerrancy is an outgrowth of many professors saying they affirmed infallibility and then of course reshaping that term. And that of course changes the meaning. So as that was occurring within uh, mostly American seminaries, by the way, that is when the 1970 Chicago statement was drafted. J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, and Norman Geisler, I believe, were the major framers of that. And so essentially the 1978 Chicago statement works through all of the more specifics, but I like that very small response that it is when all the facts are known, the scriptures and their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm. I like that. Yeah, I think that's a really good thing. And, you know, the like you're talking about that, how it's, you know, people that hijack the term, what they're actually doing is they don't believe in total inerrancy, that the Bible is totally without error. And you, you mentioned infallibility just for our audience, that the infallibility, as we know, it means without the possibility of error. It's the stronger term that actually safeguards and buttresses the doctrine of inerrancy that yeah. uh, to, to use that language that's been used by many others that are way smarter than me, way, way better defenders of the, of both of those. But, um, this is a really important thing because what these people do is they believe in partial inerrancy. They, so they think that what that means is that the the idea behind that is that some of the Bible is true insofar as it's written, you know, but some of it also is actually wrong. Then by extension, they wouldn't they wouldn't say it that way. But that's what the partial inerrancy is. It's some of the Bible's true, just not all of it is without error. Um, and so you have a problem with that, right? Because Titus 1-2 says that we have a God who never lies. So what they're doing is they're not – we have to – when we talk about presuppositional apologetics, when we talk about dealing with people's ideas, what we're doing is we're actually, as you said, we're dealing with the absurdity. But really we're saying this is actually false because God has said and God has spoken, and so God has told us that he never lies, that he's con perfectly consistent, that he's perfectly coherent. 
um, with the with how he has revealed himself, and it's enough for us yeah. to believe that. And so that's the problem with this this whole idea. And many people they don't understand. Um, many Christians don't understand that people, like you said, really well. People do hijack this term, and it's being done so much. But most of the predominant view out there, if we're 100% honest, okay, which we are on this podcast, and we have talked about this. I've talked about this on the show many times as well. Um, but it's good to it's good to talk with somebody else about these things, which is which is why I brought you on. But you know, we have to understand where ideas come from. And this is the idea out there of partial inerrancy. That isn't, as we'll talk about in just a little bit here, but I'll just bring you in. This isn't what, not only what the Bible says, it's not what the church has taught. And it's also some people, uh, when I talk about Bible reading and other things like that, they accuse me of idolatry. It's not idolatry to believe. Idolatry is finding meaning and value and worth outside of God. So it's attaching meaning and value to those things. Attaching that to the Bible is wrong and saying that because you believe these things, that's idolatry. It's not idolatry of the Bible. I would say that the reverse, the argument to that idea that we are idolatry, we are being idolatry, uh, we are committing idolatry (laughs) when it comes to how we view scripture. I would state, no, you are being idolaters when it comes to your autonomous and arbitrary ability to deal with scripture. In other words, you do not have any type of consistent basis by which you're actually engaging the text. When you say I'm a partial inerrantist, yeah. what you're saying is I get to pick and choose what is inerrant and what is not. And that is a contradiction. It is just by statement. All right. So as a logical deductive statement, you are saying that some of Scripture is inerrant, right? When you say that some of Scripture is inerrant, you are getting to choose what those things are. You are making a statement that is a particular affirmative statement regarding Scripture, and that's very problematic because I would just put out inerrancy in a, a very script at a very simple kind of deductive statement like this. God has revealed himself both in general and special revelation to all mankind. Amen. Special revelation, but to, spe- but to specific people in, excuse me, to all mankind in general revelation, to special people in specific revelation. Of course, it is available to almost all of mankind, by the way. God cannot lie, as we've noted, Numbers 23, 19, Hebrews 6, 18, Titus 1, 2. He spoke to his people and scripture, and God only speaks truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. Then all of God's words must be true. Therefore, you're committing a major mistake in only grabbing a particular within a universal affirmative, which the universal affirmative is that all of God's word must be true. Mm. And that is very, uh, very important to recognize the designation in there, at least for me. So when I deal with those individuals, like um, the one young man that I debated back in 2020, you're saying, well, wait a second, what is your standard for knowing this? That creates a massive, it creates a massive slippery slope 
And it is a legitimate slippery slope. And I can say that it's a legitimate slippery slope because what happens is you then have to validate individuals like um, Brandon Robertson. Maybe you've heard of Brandon Robertson. He's the LGBT uh, theologian that Jeff Durbin and James White just had a discussion with. If you listen to what he says, he believes that some of Jesus's words are, are inerrant. They're true. They're totally true. But he never provides you, and that's the problem with these partial inerrantists, is that they can never provide you with a mechanism for deciding what is true and what is not. Yep, exactly. I mean, since the 1980s and and moving forward, just to bring that out, since you've mentioned the sexual ethics thing, in, in chapter nine of my book, The Word Matters, I talked yep. about these things. You have the you have the Methodists, you have all these mainline denominations, and they have actually done studies. These I'm not even making these things up. They they want to rip out those parts where the New Testament talks and in the Old Testament where it talks about sexual ethics and specifically related to it, actually any mention of sexual ethics or or but which would be between in God's standard, one man between one man and one woman for life. So anything outside of that, they want to rip that out. Of the Bible, to me, to me, this is the era of Martianism, which you know mm -hmm. he we the church responded to that era. The the idea being that only certain parts of the Bible should be in it, and then with responding uh, to having the sixty six books or, or specifically the twenty seven books in the New Testament be canonized, uh, which it was uh, by Athanasius in. In 367, yeah, festival yeah, level like letter. Yeah, 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 something like that. And so, I mean, we we have we have to go back to understanding, like like we, we will talk about here in a minute. You know, we have to go back to understanding these things, and then just go back to, hey, this is what this was. The church has already responded, to this, and guess what that means? You don't have to make it up. You right. don't have to make it up because there's already good enough answers to these things. Um, and the church has responded to these things. So this is good. Well, and that's one reason, Dave, why I believe that the um, reducto ad absurdum argument, which is, of course, the way that the transcendental argument works, is, again, you reason from that conclusion demonstrating that the opposite cannot be true. In other words, if inerrancy isn't true, if all of God's word isn't true, then what is true? And you're left with a very arbitrary and vague standard. God doesn't speak unclearly. One of the, again, presuppositions through which Protestants throughout the church have looked at Scripture is that Scripture is clear. It is authoritative. Uh, it is necessary. It is sufficient. Um, and then, of course, Grudem does a good job of connecting the authority and inerrancy together in his text. And I think that other theologians do the same as well. Some might set it aside. but what we have is a reality that God has spoken clear enough in his word that we can understand him, the necessary means of salvation, the necessary means of how the church should function. Those are presuppositions that we have to go into the text with. So if you say, no, 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 it's not inerrant, then you're left with vagaries and there is no uh, universal there. You're just left with a bunch of unconnected particulars. Oh, yeah, that's that's really good, brother. So how should Christians respond to attacks on inerrancy? Well, I would say, uh, and I think that you're probably in the same boat from Scripture itself. 
a good hermeneutic practice. They taught me in my Old Testament one class at uh, the private college that I attended for my bachelor's degree. And it was let scripture interpret scripture. So what does scripture say about itself? And here's the thing. Is there an internal consistency in which scripture actually speaks about itself? So what I would do just as a New Testament priority, I would go to the words of Jesus Christ. Because as we believe, as the church has historically believed, Jesus Christ is truly God, truly man. Okay, so then Jesus is going to know the words through which the message that he sent to his people would come. And what does he say about it? Well, Jesus, again, there's a whole list of these, and this is just a a minor list. And I know you've probably gone through the same things. Abel is a real historical figure, Luke 11, 51. Uh, He refers to Matthew and, excuse me, he refers to Noah in Matthew 24, 37 to 39. Um, He mentions Abraham as a real person in John Chapter 8, verse 56, um, he even refers to, again, circumcision as a historical event, like God really told Abraham this. Sodom and Gomorrah are real historical places. Uh, you can see that in three of the Gospels, John 7, 22, Matthew 10, 15, Luke 10, 12. So in other words, Jesus is speaking in such a way as you and I would speak about Abraham Lincoln being a real historic figure Gettysburg having truly occurred, and uh, I would definitely state that he is speaking about Jonah as if he historically lived, the way in which he's dealing with each and every one of these things, he is speaking of in the New Testament as if these things really happened, as if what was recorded in the Old Testament was true. Um, That is how you and I would speak of things that we know objectively occurred. That's how Christ does that. And so we would just be looking first at what does Jesus say about the Old Testament? And that's a key place to go. Now, I think that Michael Kruger does a really good job of this in the question of canon when he talks about how the New Testament church, which did not start with a written text, then would recognize that it was part of God's continued revelation to provide for them some type of written document that was equal to in validity to what was part of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. And I think Kruger does a great job of that in uh, the question of canon. And so we're first going to look to Jesus. Uh, That's the key place where I would go. Um, I think one other piece here, Jesus, I believe, affirms the entire canon of the Old Testament in Luke 11, 50 to 51, when he says, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. I think that that is incredibly important that Christ does that. And so I'm going to always start with what Jesus said about the Old Testament. And that's how I would begin. And I would then go to Second Peter, where he again states very clearly that the words of Paul are likewise scripture. And, and that's a key piece for me. So that's how I would begin to deal with it. But I'd also go with the impossibility of the contrary, if you're going to be a Christian you have to believe that God has spoken. And if you don't believe that God's word is, if you do not believe that God's word represents or is actually comes from his nature, uh, then you've got a problem. So what do we know about God? Well, 
we're going to have to presuppose that God has spoken to us and told us things that are accurate about himself. Once you get into a contradiction, uh, the discussion kind of ends. So when someone comes to me as a Christian, I should say this, by the way, I'll respond to a Christian or one who claims to be a Christian different than I will a non-Christian in regard to this, because the non-Christian has already rejected scripture. So what they really need is the gospel, not necessarily a defense of inerrancy. Um, they'll try to use that as a, a hole to poke in. Uh, I would go to a different uh, area with them, but with the person who claims to be a Christian and they don't, they want to try to argue inerrancy, I'm going to the words of Christ. Yeah, that's really good. I, I was just thinking two passages as well, just to add to those. Yeah, verses. please. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because they testify of me. Again, he's speaking of the Old, Old Testament. Yeah. That's all they had. Uh, Luke 24, 27, he interpreted all the things, you know, the the mm. law and the prophets. He So he, so that's the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, but but even even as we're talking about this, okay, so the average person, you you might, as you're listening to this, you're like, okay, so I know that. But why does that question really matter? This this is actually really important because you had this group of you know German higher criticism that wanted to minimize the Bible. And so what they ended up doing is they ended up separating Jesus from the Bible. But as we just showed. And I really appreciate that you mentioned all those verses and then the ones I added too, because there's no way to know Jesus apart from the Bible. That's right. That is now you might be like, well, duh. I I I I realize that as you're talking about it, but okay, but there are people out there who don't believe that. And you might be shocked by that. But you need to be aware that in as you engage, as our my pastor here says, you know, in your world, he says, and, mm -hmm. I, and I like I like the way he says that in your world, because it, as you go out in your as you go out and and read and engage and with people, what you're going to find is people actually do want to do this. They, they think that they can find Jesus outside of the Bible. Uh, you, you find this in the New Age. You find this. Um, in the new what's called the new apostolic reformation, mm -hmm. especially where where they don't even want to go to the Bible and read the Bible, although they have the Passion Translation, which we've already talked about that on here. <laughs> so I would just refer to you to that episode. Bad mark and avoid. But uh, instead, what they'll do is they'll go in the new apostolic reformation and read somebody else's book about what they what, what we could charitably say what they think about the Bible, but. Here's the thing. There's no other way to know Jesus than other than as he's revealed in the Bible. There's no other way to get to and know the biblical Jesus other than in the Bible. So the way to respond, as you said so rightly, to all these things, it's like what a U.S. U.S. Uh, uh, Secret Service agent does when they, you know, to know the dollar bill. They go and they study the dollar bill so well that they know anything and absolutely everything about the dollar in the same way that christian is to study the bible read and study the bible so well that they know how to defend it because they're being they're reading it they're digesting it they're studying it they're meditating on it they're taking it home they're memorizing it they're hearing it preached and so their life is being shaped by it 
as you said, general revelation. I mean, I think it's Psalm 19, right? The mm-hmm. first half is all about this. The second half is all about specific, uh, special revelation. So the reason that we can know that God created the world, why he made all things and all those things, uh, sin, fall, you know, redemption, all of that, God tells us. And then he gives us, as one mentor of mine says, he gives us, I, since I wear glasses, he gives us glasses to see that, see through that world. And so uh, there's no way, there's no need for us to separate Jesus from the Bible. There's only one way to know Jesus, and that is through the Bible. We can't separate Jesus from the Bible. That's the real issue. And that's why this is such a huge issue for today, Dave. Why? books like yours are so important because what we have done is we have essentially very slowly but digressively removed the idea that there can be an authoritative written text that god has given us a revelational epistemology in other words the church has failed over the last 30 plus years, at least of my 40 years of my life, they've failed to provide a rational defense for the epistemological views that are guiding our evangelical culture. By that, I mean this. Once we begin to say, well, let's try to validate scripture. We've started from the wrong means. We've not actually done what the New Testament authors did, nor what Jesus did. Jesus didn't question the validity in his arguments. He rested his arguments on the validity, not question. And so the reason this is such a big deal today is because as the cultural revolutionaries continued their march on the moral and their attacks on the moral absolutes that scripture clearly reveals, they began to pick off one piece at a time, whittling away just a little bit here and a little bit there to the point now that evangelicals are not a unified voice, even on what it means to be evangelical. Like the term has lost meaning. Uh, When I'm watching, for example, I think I've already mentioned him, Brandon Roberts speak and he says, oh, Andy Stanley says such and such. And I'm thinking, how in the world are you choosing to use what Andy Stanley says? When we're unclear on these morals, what we've really done is we've said, no, no, we reject the authority and the clarity of what God has said. This is such a big deal today because if Christ is truly God, when he recognizes the authority of God's word, Mm. that should mean something to us. We cannot unhitch ourselves, as Anley Stanley has said, from the Old Testament. Why? Jesus didn't unhitch himself from it. We cannot unhitch ourselves from the accuracy of of what was said about Jesus Christ in the writings of the Gospels. Why? Paul rested his argument upon that in 1 Corinthians 15. Jude, rest his argument, contend for the faith once delivered through the saints. What is he pointing to? The faith once delivered through the saints. Oh, he's pointing to what was revealed to Mark through Peter. Matthew, John, Luke, any type of uh, other arguments, he's saying that was the faith that was revealed to us. 
by the saints through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is crucial. Um, the problem is that when we reject the authority and the inerrancy of God's word, when the church rejects it, we create an arbitrary standard that is indefensible. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of Annie's family, um, you know, I was, I, I'm going to mention this for the audience here. I was asked if I would respond to Annie Stanley. Um, I watched this uh, video a while ago um, in February 2019. He gave a speech at Dallas Theological Seminary. The, the speech is called Your Assumption is Showing. In that video, I think it's around 13 minutes to about 18 minutes. He says a lot of things. There's a There's so much, to be honest, guys, that I could say about that speech as a whole having listened to it it's 41 minutes so what we're going to do next is we're going to listen to this brief clip from andy stanley where he shares his thoughts about um the inspiration and infallibility of the bible and then dave and i van beber are going to respond to uh this clip so here is the clip um and so my purpose today is to inspire you and to try to convince you in your preaching and your teaching and your writing to tether the faith of the next generation and maybe some of this generation, to tether the faith, and that's the phrase I want you to hang on to, to tether the faith of this generation and the next to the event of the resurrection rather than the inspiration, infallibility, or the authority of the Bible. Oh good, no lightning. So let me say that one more time. <laughs> my, my, and I'll, we'll talk about this for a few minutes. And you can talk bad about me after I leave. You have permission to do that. My, my intention and my heart's desire, because I think you're uniquely qualified to do this, is to begin from now on, for the rest of our lives, in our preaching and our teaching and our writing, to tether the faith of this next generation to the event of the resurrection rather than the authority and the inspiration, the infallibility, or even the inerrancy of the Bible, where it should have been tethered all along and where the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John tethered theirs. Now let me tell you why I think this is a big deal. About nine years ago, I feel like I have everybody's undivided attention. Did you see how I did that? They're, yeah, okay. So about nine years ago, um, I was sitting at home and I'm watching a YouTube video of Sam Harris. Some of you know who Sam Harris is, famous atheist, neuroscientist. Um, and I'm listening to this, I'm watching this video, somebody told me to watch, and he's at a university setting and he is just completely dismantling the Bible. And the crowd is cheering. I mean, every time he makes a, takes a shot at the Bible, they just cheer and he's doing all the normal stuff that skeptics have done forever and as i was watching something dawned on me that i never thought about before that has rocked my world and, and changed the way i preach and teach i made the change almost immediately it, it dawned on me that sam harris shared an assumption with everybody in the room that was a skeptic or an atheist or an agnostic and this and the assumption that he shared with them he also shared with most christians although most christians haven't thought about it and the Christians in the room listening to him, and Christians everywhere. Um, and the, uh, it's an assumption that I was raised on, and it's an assumption that most of you were raised on. In fact, when I state this assumption, part of your brain will go, well, that can't be true, and part of you will feel nervous that I'm saying it's not true. And the assumption is simply this, that the Bible is the foundation of the Christian faith. And that as the Bible goes, so goes Christianity. That was the assumption he, he leveraged all of his skepticism off of, and it's an assumption that most of the people in most of our churches hold to, even though they've never thought about it, because no one's ever said it like that. 
The assumption being that as the Bible goes, so goes the Christian faith. So as Sam Harris dismantles the Bible and all confidence in the Bible, he's dismantling Christianity in his mind and in the minds of the people in the audience and in the minds and the hearts of people and students and high school students and college students everywhere. And when I say the Bible, I'm talking about what if you went to a bookstore and said, I want to see a Bible, what they would bring you. You know, Old Testament, New Testament, chaptered verse, mapped and wrapped. Okay, like the Bible, the whole thing. So just to be clear. Um, so after I, I watched this, I thought, this is terrible, and someone needs to do something, and I looked around, and it was just me. So I thought, I, this, is, this is like a big deal, because I was raised, most Christians were raised, and again, an assumption is a dangerous thing, especially when it goes underneath the surface. Many of you make decisions, we all do, based on assumptions that we don't even know about, and as soon as somebody surfaces the assumption, you think, oh, that's not true, and suddenly you make different kinds of decisions. So um, I read his book, Into Faith, and as hopefully you know, you know, Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Christopher, late Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and mainly those four guys, they responded to 9-11 with this, by publishing books against religion, all religion, not just Christianity. And so Christians came back at Sam Harris so strong after he published Into Faith, he published another little book called Letter to a Christian Nation. And I'm just curious, how many, curious, how many of you have read Sam Harris's book, Letter to a Christian Nation? Okay, two. You should all read that book. And if your faith survives, it may not. You may become an atheist after you read it, just warning you, it's a little tiny book written to Christians. If your faith survives, then I want you to ask yourself this question. Would the faith of the high school students in my church survive this book? Would the faith of the college freshmen that are leaving my church uh, survive this book? Would the average faith of the average person in our church survive this, this book? Because he does what skeptics have done forever, he goes after the Bible. Because as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. And that just isn't true. And the reason I know it isn't true is because of something I learned in this building. This is And actually, what's going to blow your mind, brother Dave, is, is that he actually cites as the reason, the person that taught him this view, he cites Norman Geisler as the person... And his cites him as the person that taught him this idea. So what you're about to hear is Andy Stanley uh, explain what he learned from Norman Geisler in the building in which at Dallas Theological Seminary he is giving his lecture. So here's that clip. Here's what I learned right here in this building that transformed my thinking about all of this. And again, this has been true and none of this, this is as old as Thomas Aquinas, none of this is new, but I just think it's more relevant than ever. And I wanna take something that I hope that you intersect with in your education and I want you to surface it. And I'm gonna give you some tips if I have time in a few minutes, how to do that. But basically in this building, Dr. Geisler, Norman Geisler, who by the way is the editor of the book, what's the book he's edited? It's one of your textbooks, starts with an I. Inerrancy, yeah. So if you, if you feel in my talk like, oh my gosh, I gotta choose between inerrancy and what Andy's saying, no. The guy who edited inerrancy taught me this. He's the one who taught me this. He's the one that gave me and a whole bunch of other people, and you have professors here doing the same thing, who gave me this framework that allows me to view our faith the way I view it. You're not giving up anything. All you're doing is saying this. I'm not gonna argue with about you about that. I want you to come here and argue with me about this because that is important, but that's only important after we argue about this. That's my point. And now you're about to hear Dr. Geisler explain what he teaches about inerrancy and infallibility as Dave Van Beber and I have been discussing it. Well, inerrant, there's two words, in and errant. It's not uh, error. That means it doesn't have any errors, but uh, when you define it more fully theologically, 
It means whatever the Bible affirms is true, is true. Whatever the Bible affirms is false, is false. And whatever the Bible affirms on whatever topic it affirms. And the simple reason for that is that God can't err. God is the author of scripture. And so whatever he's affirming in the Bible is gonna to have to be true because he's the author of all truth. So if he's affirming on history or geography or morality, uh, eschatology, end time things, whatever the Bible uh, teaches is true, is true. What the Bible says, God says uh, in a nutshell. And what's the difference between inerrancy and infallibility? Infallibility means that uh, whatever the Bible affirms, uh, it affirms with divine authority. Uh, uh, a phone book could be inerrant without error. You know, every number is right, but it's not infallible. The Bible is infallible. What's ever infallible is also inerrant, but what's inerrant is not necessarily infallible. You can have infallible math books, uh, uh, inerrant math books, you can have inerrant phone books, but they're not infallible because they don't come with divine authority or faith and practice of believers, whereas the Bible is both infallible and inerrant because it comes with divine authority and whatever it says, because it is the Word of God, is going to be absolutely true. And now we're going to continue the, the remainder of this episode where we're going to respond uh, further to Stanley um, in addition to what Geisler has said um, and uh, finish out the rest of this episode. But the main thing out of that talk that I want to that I want to highlight and respond to is he says that we must tether the faith of this and the next generation to the resurrection rather than the inspiration, infallibility and authority of the Bible. I'm going to read that again. Andy Stanley said in this talk, February 2019, your assumption is showing at Dallas Theological Seminary. Keep in mind, these are seminary students, future pastors, future leaders in the church. He says, we must tell the faith of this and the next generation to the resurrection rather than the inspiration, infallibility, and the authority of the Bible. Now, I just, I just want to respond to that whole thing because this kind of brings this discussion kind of to the forefront. So we've already said that you can't know Jesus apart from the revelation that God has given to him. And so I think that shows this shows for our audience the absurdity of, you know, and, and just the, the, the lack of biblical mooring of tying, as he says in that talk, the the uh, you have to be tied to an event rather than to the Bible. That's that's literally what he is arguing in his speech his talk, his lecture, if you will, um, and telling and encouraging seminary students. And it's not the first time that he has said this. It's not the only time that he has said this. But this is something that you can go and look, an actual title. I think we can just say this is old. This is this is what we call – I don't like the term progressive Christianity because it's not Christianity. It's It's actually theological liberalism. And this is, to me, in my mind, exactly what theological liberalism does. Um, it's it's it separates Jesus from the Bible. It's what we see with the influence of all these things: the New Apostolic Reformation, the um, you know the uh, the the Enneagram, yoga, all these things, placing feelings above the authority of the Bible, separating Jesus from the scriptures. 
Um, you, you, there's no way to there's no way to know God. There's no way to know Jesus. There's no way to know anything about God or Jesus apart from the special revelation that he's given to us in the 66 books. So that statement is is wrong. I mean, I would think again, I actually maybe I'm making a mistake here. Two things. Number one, I don't think that Geisler was still alive when he made that statement. Otherwise, it would have been quickly uh, dealt with. Geisler did not ever advocate for that idea of the primacy of the resurrection over scriptures. I have three books back here that are over 500 pages apiece from Geisler. Heck, just read Geisler's chapter in his four-volume or three-volume systematic theology where he deals with inerrancy. I mean, not to mention the hours and hours of lecture and, again, the amount of ink spilled on pages uh, about inerrancy. One of the strongest proponents of inerrancy, Geisler, would never stand there. But here's the other reason Geisler would never stand there. Uh, Geisler was a logician as well. And this is a self-defeating argument. How do you know about the resurrection of Christ? Mm, scripture. But wait a second. We don't need to go to Scripture. We need to untether ourselves from Scripture. So if we untether ourselves from Scripture, then we can't go to Scripture to know anything about the resurrection. While there are external sources, external sources from antiquity that do speak of the resurrection, which is awesome, and they the great thing is that they're very consistent with Scripture. What you've now done is you've changed your ultimate authority, and no longer is Scripture the ultimate authority, but external sources to Scripture are the authority about Jesus and the resurrection, which is very problematic for multiple reasons. Uh, how do you know that the Scriptures were right? How do you know that anybody got it right on the resurrection? Again, you've left the consistent testimony of the church, and Andy Stanley has created a massive problem. I can't believe that they didn't turn off the mic for him at DTS. I'm shame on them. Yeah, he said uh, in the video that he said, and again, I want to encourage you guys, if you want, you don't have to. Um, normally, I would never encourage you, but since we're talking about that, I would encourage you to look it up. It's Your assumption is showing it's a lecture at DTS. Um, and and the thing about that, the thing about that is just just to be clear, he actually says in the in the lecture that he learned it uh, actually in that building where it was lectured by Geisler himself. That's his claim. That's Andy Stanley's claim. And that's not even the most uh, egregious. This this isn't even the most egregious thing that you would hear him say uh, in that episode, but just in, in that lecture. But, I mean, it really highlights what you just said. Um, so we've talked about the Bible and why knowing what the Bible says about itself, and, and as we've talked about very clearly, I think, helpfully to people. But it also highlights then why we also need to know um, as we've demonstrated through examples, um, why we need to know not only what Scripture says, but then what the church has said. And then why knowing that what the church has said about these things matters, because, you know, um, you know, the church has stood on this doctrine. Now, some people say that the, the doctrine of inerrancy is a novel invention, meaning that it's it's a. It's an invention of the 20th century or the, or the 19th century is usually the argument. But the problem is, as I demonstrate in my book, 
in one mm-hmm. of the chapters, it actually begins right pretty much right after the uh you know the apostles are gone. Yeah, Justin Martyr, one of the very considered one of the first apologists of the early church, affirming the doctrine of inerrancy. And then you fast forward to the modern day, you have a clear line of people who believed in uh, the inerrancy of scripture. They didn't use necessarily that word, but they used the wording of without error or without the possibility of error, which is the language, as we've discussed, the meaning of inerrancy and infallibility. And so the church has stood on the Bible and for the Bible because it's the only way to know God. It's the only way to know Jesus. It's the only way to, you know, know the salvation that we've been given from Genesis to Revelation, everywhere in between. Um, It's the only way that we can stand fast in the midst of trials, in the midst of a changing culture. And we have anything of anything at all to say to a post-truth culture that, you know, you talked about language. I mean, we we're under attack in every way with under this guise of the change of language and the change in the meaning of words. And and part of this idea of ripping these things out the, about sexuality and gender is so that they can just, you know, support what the world says, just just handing over the argument. But that's that's what we call cultural accommodation. It's it's the fe- which at its root is the fear of man instead of the fear yes. of God. And so, um, you know, friends, the reason that really that we wanted to that we want to talk about these things that we we both have really written these books is to help you over and against these attacks to stand on the Bible. And so, um, yeah, I, go ahead, Dave. No, just one of the man. I, I I love what you said there about this is the doctrine that the church has stood on. The critique is often that inerrancy is a new concept false and you know that and i know that all we have to do is go back to one of the first church documents again um clement of rome 95 a.d they make it very clear what that the scriptures were given through the holy ghost and nothing unrighteous or counterfeit is in them that is not the exact terminology of inerrancy but that is the idea that scriptures again nothing that is a universal statement meaning that there is no thing in them that is unrighteous in other words no mistakes exist in the text of scripture no counterfeits exist in the text of scripture which that by the law of contradiction means that there cannot be a particular sum in the affirmative case in other words this is a universal negative because it's a universal negative statement you cannot have a uh, particular positive statement. So how that works is this. If all that exists in a category is only true statements, that means that none of those statements that exist in a category can be untrue. Not any of the particular, there can be no particular examples of that category having something that is true. Clement makes it very clear right here. While he does not use a term, inerrancy you can set this beside in fact i do this in the in the back of my book i set many of these statements from church history right beside direct quotes from the 1978 chicago statement to demonstrate that while they're not verbatim man they're really